0: Alright guys, so I am going to be preaching tonight from, we're going to be in the book of 1st John, and we're going to actually read, I know that the bulletin said 1st John, uh, well I think it was 8 through 10, right, Uh, the cleansing power, excuse me, confession in the Christian, but we're actually going to read the whole first chapter of 1st John so that we can get the proper context, Right, because the last thing that I want to do in in the opening verses of a letter like this is unnecessarily parachute myself in without the context. Right, especially when there's so little to be mentioned. And so let's go ahead and read that together. Uh, if you're there in First John, uh, we're starting in verse, er, yeah, in verse one. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you. That God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So as we open the word today together, I want to give us just a little bit of context. Um, the, the, book for, the book of 1 John was obviously written by the apostle whose name it bears, the apostle John. And um, it was written, one thing that you will notice about this book, uh, which distinguishes it from basically all other New Testament epistles except for the epistle to the Hebrews, is that it doesn't have a formal introduction. So we look at this here. And we, and we, we see that it doesn't have. Uh, for example. I'll, I'll borrow from 3 John. From the, the, the elder to the beloved lady. Or, or, or to Gaius. My beloved Gaius. There's no that here. We don't have that here. We just simply have. John the apostle. Going right into it. And the reason for that is because John is writing this letter as a circulatory letter. It's, actually, it's, it's not intended for one particular church, though I'm sure he has specific people in mind. He's, the, the Apostle John is writing this from Ephesus to the, 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 number, the host of churches in Asia Minor that were full of relatively young in the faith Christian men and women who were seeking to grow as Christians, and also um, as the Lord Himself suggested. So there's there's also part of this which is we would say polemical. Uh, some people would hold this letter as entirely polemical, um, where where it's just it, it would be uh, the Apostle John writing as a basically just writing to contrast the teaching of, of false teachers who were in that area. Well. I don't take that view. I do think that that obviously is, uh, is significant. Um, you know, that, that, it's, that, it's, that it's a valid point that there certainly were false prophets and teachers, uh, false teachers uh, seeking to infiltrate the church. And, you know, we see that even from the Lord Himself. The Lord Himself makes that very clear that that's going to be that way from the beginning. Um, you can see that in passages like Matthew. Uh, 7.15 and Acts 20, 29 through 30. But the Apostle John here is motivated not just by polemical interests, but also by his direct commission from the Lord Jesus Christ and his genuine pastoral concern for his own children in the faith. This letter is to provide them with a robust and mature knowledge of, ...of the God whom they have believed. You could reference, for example, uh, 1 John 5.20 would make that very clear. So, we'll go ahead and begin. um, And for those of you who are looking for an outline, um, here it is. Verses 1 through 4, I'm calling the Apostolic Proclamation. Which breaks down into two sub-portions here. You've got verses 1 and 2, which is the eternal life made manifest... Uh, In a word, manifestation. And then you've got verse 3, which is fellowship extended. In a word, fellowship. And verse 4, joy completed. Verse 5 would be God is light, which starts off a new section, which would be fellowship in the light. And then verses 5 through 10 would be God is light. And then you have a cycle that begins... And so you have verses 6, 7, and 8 would be the downward spiral of sin and darkness. And then verses 7 and 9, which ultimately present the thesis of our topic tonight, which is confession and cleansing in Christ. So we'll begin with chapter 1 again in verse 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard and which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and which was made manifest to us. Here the Apostle John's intention is to ground his proclamation, not in ambiguous speculations about God, not in the Greek philosophical systems of his day, not even in his own personal experience, you look at that, and somebody somebody will say, "Well, what about the fact that he 's saying w- looked with our eyes and with our we 've touched him with our own hands? That sounds very experiential to me. Well, if we read verse two it's he's not it, 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 there's no doubt that the apostle john is is referring to his own experience here but Verse 2 makes it very clear that he's not offering to us his experience as the grounds for our faith. Instead, he says, the life was made manifest to it and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you that eternal life. And so he's not even offering his own personal experience nor his own apostolic authority but rather the person and work of the one who was eternally with the Father and then made manifest to us, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Apostle's John intention, is to ground ground his proclamation in the actual person, Jesus Christ. But why? why? Why is he proclaiming this at all? Well, the purpose, of, the purpose is clearly expounded to us in verses 3 and 4. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father. You see, that spirit wrought desire in the Apostle John's heart is to ground this extension of fellowship... To us in that very same fellowship that had been extended to him. And what fellowship is that? Again, uh, part two of verse three, the second half of verse three. Our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And so it's that fellowship that had been extended to him by the word made manifest. that The apostle John is extending to us. This fellowship originates from eternity's past, from within the triune Godhead. Remember in verse 2b where he says, that eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that is none other, that eternal life is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this fellowship extending from eternity's past from within the triune Godhead is then extended to us at the point in which the second person of the Trinity manifests himself in flesh on this earth in the person of Jesus Christ and extends his physical hand of fellowship to the apostles, which in turn extended by the apostle John himself to the recipients of this letter and down through the centuries. And I just wanted to make a quick observation because as, I, as I've studied a, a bit of church history, I think it's, it's so amazing when we consider that the faith that we hold in the Lord Jesus Christ is actually not a faith that just appeared in the 20th century, or the 19th century, or even with the Reformers themselves. This faith goes all the way back past the Lloyd-Joneses and the Spurgeons and the Luthers and the Calvins and the Zwinglies. To the Bonapartes and the post Anti Nicene Fathers and Polycarp and Ignatius and Athanasius. These people, Polycarp, for example, was a disciple of the Apostle John himself. And so we see that this fellowship that is now being extended to us as we read this passage is one that has been handed to us from eternity's past all the way throughout history. To this very point. To Bethany Bible Church. And our own two faithful pastors. Lance and Chris. To the people of this very move, in this very room. In this very moment. But why does he do that? Why does he do that? Well. In verse 4 it says. He's writing these things. Well we'll, 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 read, we'll start again in verse 3. That which we have seen and heard. And we' We proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, I just want to make, I want to make another quick observation here. If you would, just turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 15 in verse 11. Here, Jesus is the one who's talking. And Jesus says, our Lord says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be full. This your joy, imagine imagine if you will for a second, the Apostle John himself who is now instructing us in this letter is sitting with the rest of the disciples around Jesus. And this is actually, John 15 takes place the night, before the, the night before Jesus would ultimately go and bear our sins on the cross. And here this, Jesus says this, your joy now becomes, as the Apostle John is teaching, our joy as he recounts the promises of the Savior. Because there's no greater joy, brothers and sisters, than unveiled fellowship with the one who has created us to enjoy him forever. Those of you who have had the opportunity to uh, fellowship with me and our um, flocks group, who are fellowship with one another in our flocks group, know that I have a great love for the Westminster Confession. The Westminster Catechism, question one, says this. What is the chief and highest end of man? Answer, man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. Brothers and sisters, God has created us for unspeakable joy in him. And it is precisely this ultimate complete joy of ours that is motivated, that serves as the ultimate motivation of John here in delivering this message. What is that message? Verse 5 says, this is the message that we have heard from him. So going back to verse 1, so we, so we, so we have Jesus Christ taking on flesh, dwelling amongst his disciples giving them a message that 20 to 30 years later, here's the Apostle John giving to us. And that message is that God is light. This is the message we we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. Now I know that I have not done, I mean, this has just probably been the the most terrible sermon that you have ever heard as far as being very disorganized. I'm hoping that you guys can follow this, okay? I I, I sincerely do. But I'm going to quote Martin Luther here, okay? And here's what Martin Luther says. I have, and he's talking about 1 John. He says, I have never read a book written in simpler words than this one. And yet, the words are inexpressible. And the reason why he says that is because the truths that are in this, which I'm very poorly conveying, are so clearly stated, like how could I be messing them up so badly, right? But, But they're so clearly stated, and yet so profound, that in the words of of, of perhaps the most boisterous father of all church history, Martin Luther himself, he says, the truths found here are inexpressible. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Brothers and sisters, there is perhaps no greater understatement In all of human literature. For the spirit of God to allow, nay, oversee the apostle John in penning such a statement is a condescension of the highest order. It really is. You see, when God says that he is light. When the apostle here gives us the inspired word, which is that God is light. The reality is, is that God, the light that emanates from the glory of God's presence is infinitely greater than the, than the, the most powerful, condensed light imaginable. Right? I, and I did some, some sort of silly research here. Um, I took the, the, the time to look up the brightest and most powerful Concentrated light known to man, and it turns out that in 2017, the the University of Nebraska built and fired a one petawatt, that is one quadrillion watt laser, that was one billion times brighter than the surface of the sun. And yet, even the sun from 93 million miles away will burn your skin on a sunny California, Southern California day at the beach. The point in saying that is that though that may be and and, and, and literally this laser they, they were saying is, is enough to destroy molecules. In, in fact, they were saying they're, they're getting ready to build a new laser that a new laser that is has the capability of tearing apart empty space. I don't even know what that means. Tearing apart empty space, and yet the brightness of the light that emanates from the glory of our God is infinitely greater than such a silly toy. Right? 1 Timothy 6.16 says this. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality. Who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor, and eternal dominion. Amen. I may, I'm trying to make a big fat deal of this because the profundity of that statement that God is light and that even the most powerful human conceptions of light are enough to obliterate things at the, things at the molecular level Right, And yet God is so infinitely greater than that. And yet why then are we not consumed? Why are we not consumed by this infinitely great and powerful light of God? And I submit to you that that is because that, that powerful light light is mitigated by none other than another one of God's perfect attributes. That is, his loving kindness. Many of you would be familiar with, his, with, with the passage in Lamentations 3.22. My wife bought a, a picture at Ross, actually, that has this on it, it's, and it's beautiful. It says that because of the Lord's great love, his Loving kindness, we are not consumed for his compassions never fail. Brothers and sisters, God is light. And I fear, my fear in not making a big enough deal of that is that because I'm not the Apostle John proclaiming that to you now. My fear is that if I don't say, it, make make a big enough deal of that, that you're going to hear this next statement and you're going to think it's harsh. Verse 6 says, if we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. The English translations have, have a way of, um, what is it? I think it's, Uh, euphemizing would be the word for it. Euphemizing, the Greek. The text says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, if you say that, you're a liar. That's mean. Is it not? Right? does not that mean? And yet, it's not. It's not mean at all. It's perfectly consistent with God's enduring, loving, loving kindness. The problem is, is that when we look at a passage like God is light, we have a tendency to think, okay, God is light, sure. LED light bulb, next. Right? That's our tendency. And so we come to these passages that say things like that, and we think, that's harsh. How, how could God say that? But again, the reality is, is that God is perfectly and so enduringly loving and kind to us. And that even in the context of what we've been reading here today, we see that God has from eternity's past, ever since the and even ever since the creation of man Been enduring. Been enduring the sins of mankind. Been enduring even our own sinfulness. Our own personal sinfulness. And yet we're able to freely walk about. He he doesn't cease providing for those daily needs that he gives us. He doesn't cease to allow our eyes to behold beautiful things. And our ears to hear beautiful music. He doesn't withhold that from us. He's kind. But part of his kindness is to call out darkness because it has no fellowship with him. Verse 7 says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. In verse 8... If we say, but if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. One commentator pointed out that in verses 6, 8, and, and 10, what we see is actually a progression, right? We see, a pro- we see the progression of darkness and sin's deceitfulness we say that we have fellowship, we lie. With him while we walk in darkness, we lie. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And in verse 10 it says, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. The liar is quickly self-deceived and then quickly moves on to Perpetuating that falsehood. And yet, verse 9 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, brothers and sisters, the last thing that I want to do, this is a glorious truth. I mean, it's, it's, it's so glorious, it's so beautiful the last thing that I would want to do is, is is not paint it as such and so what I want to do is I want, I want to try to clarify a just a couple terms here the word confess now in our classes in seminary they say you don't ever nine out of t- nine, nine out of ten times. Quoting the original language is what's going to happen is you're going to actually confuse the issue, not clarify the issue. Here's the one out of ten times, I think. Because when we see that word confess, I think that the tendency is for us to think of a dark wooden box with a priest, maybe. Or just a a dark room, a dark time, right, where it's just darkness, darkness. And yet, this is actually how we are to, this is contextually, this is actually how God is saying, what what the Apostle John is saying. This is how we walk in the light, as he is in the light. We confess our sin. The Greek word is homo logomen. Now, the only reason why I say that is because I think that if I break this up a little bit, you'll be able to understand. Homo, same. Logo, the logo on your shirt. Is a word. Word about a company, right? You add that men suffix and it becomes to say. So what the scriptures say here, the way of confession is saying the same thing. So for us to confess our sins is ultimately to, to really to just say the same thing that God says about our sins, which is what? That they're darkness. And that they're wicked. And then in all of these tenses... Right, So, so for example, in in verse 8, he says, if we say we have no sin, contrast that to verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, right? There are different tenses there. One's a present tense, one's a perfect tense. And the only difference is this. If we try to say that we have arrived and that sin simply doesn't affect us now, what does it say? We're self-deceived. We're self-deceived, and, and I want and brothers and sisters, I, I just want to be frank about this. Sin is so we, we've got to have a right view of sin. We live in we live in the midst of a culture that, when you talk about the just penalty of God befalling the sinner, the cry immediately goes to, "How could he condem- How could God, a loving God, condemn people to hell?" Conscious. Punishment for eternity. My friends, the reason for that, there's one reason for that. It's because we don't have God's view of sin. We don't have the apostles' view of sin, which is God's view of sin. We think of sin as this, oops, I sort of did it. I, I, I made a mistake. You see, a, a certain worship lyrics talking about Oh, yeah, sin is is just a kind of a trivial issue. Brothers and sisters, here's the reality. Apart from the blood of Jesus Christ poured out on my behalf, I deserve hell for eternity. For eternity. And it's not just me. The scriptures say that you're in that boat with me. We've got to have a right view of sin. It's that ugly. It is that egregious of an offense to a holy God who dwells in unapproachable light. And yet, he says, if we will, if we will confess our sins, if we will say the same thing. That God says about our sin is what does it say? Two words. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. How can God be faithful? How is God faithful to cleanse us from all sin? How is God faithful to, what does it mean that God is faithful to, to to cleanse us, to forgive our sins? Well, let me tell you. From the beginning, Genesis 3 says this. This is the Lord talking to the snake, the serpent of old. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her Offspring, and he will bruise your head, and you will bruise his heel. That's what we call, theologians will call the proto evangelicum. It is the pre gospel, it is the earliest promise of God's triumph over human sin. There will come one who will crush the head of that wicked serpent god is faithful how can i illustrate that better than to say what's the date october 9th 2019 9 days 10 months 2019 years since what since what god is faithful He fulfilled that promise. He sent his son. That's a historical fact. doesn't matter if you're in India or China or Europe or Africa, South America, or sitting right here at Bethany Church. You look at your phone, it says the same date that it says in all those places. The gig is up. People can pretend, we, 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 you know again, this is America. we believe in pluralism. People can believe what they want to believe, but the reality is is that our God has been faithful to deliver on His promises. He is faithful to forgive sin, but how is He just? I bet you guys have the answer for that. You, would, you don't need me to tell you that. How is God just to forgive sin? Well, God is just to forgive our sin. It would be most clearly articulated in the New Testament, perhaps, from a passage like 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. Here's how our God is just to forgive sin. For our sake. He made Him to be sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. God is just to forgive the sins of those who by faith trust not in their own righteous deeds that don't exist, but in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And if we will confess our sins, if we'll say what God says about our sin, now I'll point this out too, brothers and sisters. This is this this is this clearly has implications in an evangelistic setting, right? It certainly does. But this is being written to believers, justified saints, justified saints. If we will confess our sin if we'll say what God says about our sin, God will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say that we have not sinned, that's the perfect tense. And this is all, this is all, this is all it means right here. A perfect tense is just this. A past action that has present implications. Talking about the present implications. If I say, "Hey, you want to have lunch?" and you say, "No, I have or uh, I have already eaten." I have already eaten. The next question in the English mind is, "When?" Okay, well, when did you eat? Right. It's a perf, but but, but that's because that's because we're not under, We don't have that category of a perfect tense. Locked down. And yet we do have it in our language, but we don't, the concept doesn't really relate as it did in the Greek. No, I've already eaten, and therefore I'm not hungry. That's the current, the present implication of that past reality, right? If we say that we have not sinned, that's a perfect tense, well, we make God a liar. And his word is not in us. He's talking to Christians. Brothers and sisters, we ought to deal frankly with God about our sin. Brothers and sisters, our God is faithful to cleanse us from all righteousness. He already knows. He already knows. He knows the intentions of my heart. He knows the intentions of your heart. If we will just... Deal frankly with with God about our sin? He's faithful and just to cleanse us from all, to forgive us of all sin and cleanse us of unrighteousness. And so the final point of our message today, and then I'll uh, I'll cut it, is chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. This is the apostle's goal in writing this to us. He dwells in unapproachable light. We sin. That's we Look, the, the goal here is not to be perfect, right? That would be pretty much the exact opposite of what John's, if, if we're If we're saying that, if the goal here is Oh, I want to get to a, I want to be in a position where I can say that I don't have sin. The apostle says, if you ever say that, you're lying. Don't say that. The goal here is that we would deal frankly with God about our sin as believers and be cleansed from it. And in so doing, walk in the light with God. That's it. So... My encouragement to you, brothers and sisters, would be if you were in your heart making fun of me, that you would confess that to the Lord. Okay? But uh, in all seriousness, I mean, as a believer, I, 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 I commit sins that I dare not speak of. I dare not speak about. I don't even tell my wife the things that happen in my twisted sin-tainted heart and mind that has been redeemed. And yet, there's this battle, this tension going on back and forth. We don't need to minimize that. We don't need to pretend like it's not as bad as it is. We can deal frankly with God about it. He commands us to. And that's, that's the point in this passage, is that we would just deal frankly with God about it and be cleansed. And rejoice even in that. I had the intention of going into Psalm fifty-one and David's confession, but if I could give you a little bit of homework, we'll end a little earlier and uh, go home and read the entirety of Psalm fifty-one. And what you'll see is a beautiful confession from our one of one of our forefathers in the faith, David. And we'll see not only we'll we'll see not only what it looks like. Well, we'll see the joy that comes as a result of a renewed and right spirit. He says, restore to me, O Lord, the joy of my salvation, that I would praise you, right? We want to be Christians who walk in the daily walk in the joy of our salvation. That means we've got to, we've got to be real If sin sin wasn't that bad, then what in the world was the Son of God doing on a cross? Father God, thank you for your word, Lord. I I pray, Father, that in spite of my weakness, Lord, that you accomplished your purposes in the hearts of your people, God. I'm just so thankful, Lord, walking away from this, that, Lord, that you have one me and my brothers and sisters to yourself God and that we look forward to an eternity with you and with one another praising you ruling and reigning with you in the kingdom Lord What these truths are truly too glorious for us Lord and yet as sure as today is Wednesday that day will come even more sure That day will come, Lord, when we will be with you in light, freed from this body of death in a renewed, uncorruptible body in fellowship with you. And so, Father, help us to walk um, in the light that is calling to mind, clinging to what you've done on our behalf, that is, confessing our sin and our failure when they happen for exactly what they are, Lord. Help us to do these things for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.